Father God, we have asked you to take our lives and make them yours. Would you now, through your word, show us how that is possible in the power of your spirit, how it is possible and joyful. For we ask this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, my friends, as we remain standing, let's uh, turn to Romans chapter 1. And we're looking this morning from verse 13 to 15. You'll find it on page 939 in the Pew Bibles. Romans chapter 1, and beginning at verse 13. I'll read to verse 15, page 939 in the Pew Bibles. Let's hear God's word. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Well, when you look through this uh, passage, it becomes fairly rapidly obvious that what was motivating the Apostle Paul was different from what would motivate the average uh, Roman at the time and the typical person today as well, quite different. Uh, These verses, in fact, seem to me to be designed to show us, to reveal to us this unlikely motivation of Paul's as an apostle. And so you can see that Paul begins with one of his characteristic phrases that he often uses to indicate that what he's about to say is of substantial significance. I want you to know, brothers. Or more literally, it's actually a double negative. I I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. This form of expression is one that Paul used to introduce a significant statement. I want you not, I don't want you not to know. It's not a form that would not be usual in Skunk and White's elements of style, perhaps, but it was how Paul dictated when he wanted to make a point and say it was significant. He uses the same expression in chapter 11, verse 25 in Romans, when he explains the significance of the mystery of Israel's salvation. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And he uses the same sort of thing in another of his letters as well, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. For instance, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. And there he's about to explain the significance of the Old Testament for the uh, Corinthian situation there. Similarly, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, or 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8, or 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Now, obviously, <laughs> the Romans could not compare what he was writing in this place with his other letters in the way we can today. We have an advantage over them in that respect. But this formula of words that Paul was dictating now was designed by him, it was characteristic of him, as a tool to draw attention to what is about to follow. It's as if he's sort of leaning towards them now and saying, I I do not want you not to know, and then following with an appeal, an affectionate connection, brothers or sisters, colleagues or family. 
This is significant. He's now sharing with them. He's taken one step forward to them. And what he's sharing here is his heart. That is what motivates him. And it is uh, unexpected for many of the Romans, no doubt, as it would be for many people today. You see, he'd often intended to come to them. Perhaps they knew that. We don't know for sure. Perhaps they did. But he'd been prevented. And we don't know what prevented him. People have speculated, but nowhere are we told, and we just do not know. What we do know is uh, what he reveals about his heart. That is, his lack of personal presence with them was not, he now insists, as he takes a step forward, was not a lack of personal desire. No, not at all. Oh, he's highly motivated to be there. And so he shows them about this motivation. It's because, why does he want to be there? It's because he may reap some harvest, uh, that this harvest may be among them as well as among the rest of the Gentiles, and because he is under obligation. Those are the three sections of this passage, as we will see. This is why he is so eager. He's showing his heart now. Now he's kind of using his hands. Well, I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you also at Rome. And each of these aspects, his motivation, inspiration, drive, passion, well, they're actually pretty difficult, from, uh, different from what the average person today would find motivating or think would be motivating, as they would have been different from the average Roman at the time and what they would have considered to be typically motivational. It'd be a bit like uh, watching a motivational speech apparently gone wrong. I saw a preview to the NBC hit show Community online the other day, and in it a person attempts to motivate the students of the community college, but actually only ends up insulting all the different groups who are attending. It's, it's really very funny. Uh, and it's funny because typically motivational speakers try to motivate us by flattering us. You, know, you can be whatever you want to be if you try hard enough. That's the kind of thing they say. And that kind of self-help motivation permeates our attitudes today. For instance, the Oxford University Dictionary Word of the Year is this selfie. Selfie. It means taking a picture of yourself, for those over 60 who might not know, with a cell phone. Perhaps you do know, sorry. 2013, the word for the year is selfie. We assume today that what motivates people to action is to answer the question, what is in it for them or for me? Paul's inspiration, motivation, driving, passion, reason why he gets out of bed in the morning is quite different from a selfie, if you use that as a kind of little picture of the sort of thing he's saying. Instead, it is thoroughly God-centered. Yet at the same time, it's sweet, it's pleasurable, it's bountiful, there's a harvest. So he is obligated, he says, and yet he's also looking forward to this harvest and the expansion of this fruitfulness to them as well as the rest of the Gentiles. See, we, we assume that there are only two ways to motivate people to action, don't we? There's the carrot or the stick. You either threaten people, the stick, or you appeal to people, the carrot. But there is a third way the gospel. 
See, having seen last week that Paul's purpose in visiting the Romans was to strengthen them by means of this gospel, Paul now shows them that this same gospel is what is motivating him. He wants to preach the gospel to them, and it is this gospel that strengthens them, Romans 16, verse 25, also motivates him. It's his heart that he's sharing. This is authentically who he is. So, he says, this is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This gospel is motivating him in a personal way. I am under obligation, he says. I am eager. And then when he returns to Romans, uh, and then when we return to Romans in the new year after Christmas, verse 16, and then verse 16, I am not ashamed. John Owen put it like this. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realization of the gospel in our souls. So this is personal motivation derived from gospel gratitude. Let me then uh, break it down for us with three surprising pictures of a heart captivated by that gospel. First picture, motivation derived from the gospel by spiritual fruit. So that's verse 13, isn't it? In order that, he's using uh, that uh, connecting phrase, in order that, to indicate that it's an explanation. Why? In order that, why does he want to be there? I may reap some harvest. That's why. The word for harvest is literally fruit, of course. And the idea here, according to John Murray and John Stott, two authorities, is not that of Paul bearing fruit, but of Paul gathering fruit. So Paul's motivated by the thought of fruit bearing among the Roman Christians and being able to gather that fruit, the harvest. That's his heart. One ancient commentator called Severian put it like this, There are many who sped to Rome for human reasons, but Paul reveals his own chaste desire, that is his pure desire, to go there, and that his motive was a godly one. That's what he's showing them, his motive, that it's a godly one. Paul was not going to Rome as a tourist, but as an evangelist. Not to indulge in the fine delights of the capital city's restaurants, but to reap the spiritual harvest of the capital city's Christians. <laughs> this that motivated Paul is actually very different from what we think motivates people and what we think will motivate people to action, and hence we use rather different tools than the one that Paul uses when he wants to motivate people. And we can see this in three ways. One, Paul was motivated by spiritual fruit, not material fruit. He's probably thinking, isn't he, of Jesus' promise in John 15 that those who remain in Jesus would see much fruit. We think money will motivate people, but Paul is going to the capital city not for fortune or fame or just for fun. He's going to build the church, see people come to faith in Christ, and for Jesus' name to be honored. If you want to motivate a Christian, you do it by spiritual fruit. Paul's motivation is for spiritual, not material fruit. Two, Paul was motivated by spiritual fruit, not by religious maintenance, not just going through the motions. See, some people, in order to avoid the suspicion of wanting material fruit, fall into the opposite trap of not wanting any kind of results at all. 
Well, no one will be motivated to do great things for God unless they are trained to expect great things from God. Isn't that right? William Carey began the modern missionary movement with that exact phrase, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God, back in 1792. But in a sense, he's just reflecting Paul's desire here for fruit. So if you're an older Christian, be careful not to discourage younger Christians from appropriate spiritual ambition. And if you're a younger Christian, have appropriate spiritual ambition for fruit, for harvest, not a selfie, but for God's glory. See, Paul here, not only motivated by spiritual, not material, fruit, not maintenance. Also three, Paul was motivated by spiritual fruit, not individual fruit. So the fruit he was looking for, as we've seen from John Murray and John Stott, was in them not him. And so he's hoping to reap this harvest, to gather this fruit, literally. But those who are going to bear the fruit are the Romans, not Paul. And so this is not an exercise in his individual development or individual goal setting or taking his ministry to the next level. No. It's an exercise in the development of the Roman church and their ministry bearing fruit. And we're often wrong-headed about this. We think that uh, If we are not individually, if we're not as an individual going to gain, if we're not as an individual going to bear fruit, then we will not personally benefit. Oh, no. Perhaps you know Jim Elliott's famous motto. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. See, any merely individual fruit is actually temporary, momentary, ephemeral, spiritual fruit, even for someone else in the, in the family of God. That's eternal. Cannot be taken away from you. It's important we get the spiritual thing right, the spiritual fruit thing right, because in order to avoid selfish ambition, many attempt to motivate themselves without the potential for any kind of spiritual fruit whatsoever. It's quite wrong-headed. It's a bit like the story of the Navy sailor who was working on the USS Kitty Hawk. He heard a special announcement over the uh, system, the loudspeakers saying everyone had to cease all unnecessary work. There was going to be some special gathering for every available person. Cease all unnecessary work, the announcement said. And once the special gathering had ended, another announcement this sailor recorded, came over the loudspeakers, and it said, resume all unnecessary work. <laughs> but you see, Christian, your work at home, in the office, your work as an evangelist, in children's ministry, discipleship, leadership, was well, not only necessary... <laughs> If in Christ and for Christ, it has a guaranteed prospect of bountiful and everlasting spiritual fruit, harvest. Now, as a church, we're beginning an Advent season, uh, emphasis on how Christmas can change your life on the other side of Thanksgiving. Let's make the most of that opportunity to invite friends so that there may be spiritual fruit 
witness to, friends. Well, spiritual fruit is one of the unlikely pictures of a heart captivated by divinity, by the gospel, which, by which Paul is motivated as we seek to witness and disciple those around us. But it's not the only one. Also, second picture, motivation derived from the gospel and gratitude for what is in the gospel by also then further expansion. Well, this also is rather unexpected. Um, but it is the second of, three, uh, of Paul's three pictures of his motivational drive. He introduces it with as well as, verse 13, second half. Among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, let me just give you a little technical explanation here before I apply it. For those of us who study the book of Romans carefully, this is a, a little clue that goes some, some way, some distance to solving a technical conundrum, technical difficulty. Namely, what was the ethnic makeup of the church at Rome? Scholars have talked about this at great length. Uh, Paul spends considerable time quoting from the Old Testament scriptures in the book of Romans. That might suggest the church of Rome was largely Jewish. He also discusses at length the role of Israel in God's ongoing salvation plan. Again, perhaps then many Jews in the church at Rome. What is more, the book of Acts, uh, chapter 18, verse 2, tells us that because of the expulsion of the Jews from Rome by Emperor Claudius in A.D. 49 that we know occurred, Priscilla and Aquila, two Jews, worked with Paul in Corinth. And by the time that Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, these two, Priscilla and Aquila, had made their way back to Rome, uh, Romans 16, verse 3, and so there must then have at least been some Jewish followers, and perhaps that uh, expulsion had now ceased and the Jewish believers have returned to Rome. Nonetheless, this verse here indicates that Paul regarded the Roman church as within the parameters of his Gentile ministry, among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now, someone may say that is just that Paul was, in, at least in part, thinking of his ministry in Rome as an evangelistic ministry to other Gentiles in the city, and that may well be the case. But nonetheless, still Paul viewed the Roman church itself as among the Gentile churches to whom he was called, among you also, as well as the other Gentiles. Now, of course, it's a technical kind of discussion, but it actually confirms, again, that Paul's purpose was primarily here to build up the Roman church to be a launching pad for reaching the world for Christ, all nations, the gospel of God for all nations, that melodic line of the entire book that we see weaving throughout Romans again and again and again. And then underneath that umbrella, that panoply, that melodic line, here in this verse, we see a second picture of Paul's heart as he shares that with us, his motivation. For Paul, the Roman church was the further expansion of his God-given ministry, hence he's motivated. Uh, one pastor I came across saw his church grow from 120 to 14,000 in attendance during a lengthy 40-year pastorate. At one point, they were building yet another, even larger auditorium, and building projects are always rather difficult things for pastors, and inevitably he got into was criticized at some point or other. He was trying to build a 9,000-seater, you see, and, and people were criticizing him. So he came up with this classic response to the criticisms. Why are you building such a big sanctuary? He would say, it's because we cannot afford to build it any bigger. Now, you see, we have to have balance here, don't we? In the 80s and the 90s, the great temptation for American Christians of all the abundance of prosperity was materialism. 
And I suspect that is still a temptation. And as Christmas approaches, we need again to remember to be content with what we have. But such a message of contentment is not to bleed over to being content with not trying to reach people for Christ. Or being content with not witnessing to our neighbors. Or being content not to disciple our friends. There is such a thing as a holy discontent. Paul wanted to reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. What a thing for Paul to say. Haven't you done enough yet, Paul? Put your feet up. Take life easy for a little bit. We all heard about what you did in Corinth. You know, take it easy for a few years. That was a great sermon in Athens. Do you really need to preach another one? Isn't one missionary journey enough? Haven't you been shipwrecked enough times, Paul? Why take the risk of going down to Jerusalem to take up an offering there with all the suffering that that will cause you? At your age? Take life easy. You're too old. If they don't say you're too old to do things for Jesus, they will say you're too young. I have discovered that in ministry there are about two years in your entire lifespan when you're neither too old nor too young for people. Uh, C.T. Studd, one of the famous Cambridge University seven missionaries, he played cricket for England. It's a game I will delight to explain to anyone who has four years to hear the explanation. C.T. Studd said, uh, some people want to live within the sound of steeple and chapel bell. I want to set up a rescue shop within a yard of hell. What all churches are rescue shops to expand the gospel to others as well as us. Perhaps you've had significant fruit already in your life. You've led people to Jesus. You're discipling people. At least you did last year. Don't rest on your laurels. What's the next hill to take? What's the next harvest to reap? So that you may have fruit here as well as in your previous work for Jesus. Which people can you invite to our Christmas services? See, until we have this motivation, this heart motivation of further expansion clear we will rarely reach our neighbors or friends for Jesus. It is, at one level, a worldview matter predicated on the principle that Christ is for all nations. It is, at one level, intrinsically antipathetic to our postmodern age. But we can overcomplicate evangelism today with all these sort of technicalities and worldview issues. I remember doing an impromptu survey with people at random some years back about postmodernism. In England, you have to understand a mail office is called a post office. And I was talking to a man behind the counter at a post office, and I asked him what he thought of postmodernism. He blinked at me, a rather different request than the one he was used to, and replied, well, we are getting some new computers in this week. Postmodernism. See, because though Paul himself believed in the further expansion of the gospel for all nations, therefore, even within the context of Roman society, with many different gods and an antipathetic view of morality to the Christian, he nonetheless was eager to preach the gospel there as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He was going to do it. 
See, when it comes to evangelism, it seems to me that trying is always the right decision. <laughs> Michael Jordan said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that is why I succeed. You may not have the perfect answer to how to witness to postmodern people. And we can all learn from training like we have here at the church, the, the, the arts of spiritual conversation. But you go through that, and at some point, you just have to take the shot. I think it was Wayne Gretzky, the, the uh, um, hockey player, right? Who said, you miss 100% of the shots you do not take. Well, enough sporting metaphors. I'm just trying to make up for my earlier cricket reference. <laughs> Paul is deriving motivation from the same gospel he's presenting to the Romans. Spiritual fruit, further expansion, and lastly, a most surprising picture of the heart that he shares to the Romans and to us, a heart captivated by the gospel, captivated by divinity, by God himself. Third picture, motivation derived from the gospel, gratitude by God-centered obligation. Obligation, you say? Yes, indeed. God-centered obligation. See, the third of Paul's three pictures, his motivational drive, is emphasized by concluding how he personally is obligated at the end of the sentence in the original. Verse 14 reads like this, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, or to Greeks and barbarians, wise and ignorant, obligated. I am. Paul is depicting the unlikely source of his motivation as God-centered obligation in at least three ways. Here they are. One, he has international God-centered obligation. Now, again, just got to understand the context here. In ancient times, the phrase Greeks and barbarians gradually over time came to just mean everyone, all nations. The context is that the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking culture viewed uh, all other cultures as less sophisticated than them. Hellenistic cultures spread throughout the Roman world, and so Rome became a prime proponent of, broadly speaking, Hellenistic cultural norms. And for Greeks then, those who did not speak Greek as their first language were called barbarians. This is the context. The word barbarian originally came from the noise that Greeks felt that other people made when they sp spoke their own languages, you know. Bar-bar noise, hence barbarian. And by the time that Paul was writing, though, the phrase Greeks and barbarians just had sort of slid to mean everyone, all nations, like uh, some in Western countries today might say the West and the rest. Charles Hodge then concluded that Greeks and barbarians simply equaled, by this point, all nations. Paul is showing that he had an international, God-centered obligation. The gospel that Paul was obliged to proclaim was as big as the globe. For the one true global community is the church, because Christ is king of all nations. Paul is not just obligated to all nations, Greeks and barbarians, also too. Paul has an obligation to all classes. Now, it's hard to decide, actually, whether the phrase wise and foolish is exactly equivalent to the phrase Greeks and barbarians or somewhat distinct from it. In my view, most likely, it's an overlapping description 
that equally spans the globe, but this time not across all nations, but from the top to the bottom of all classes. Now, Paul knew that not all who did not speak Greek were foolish, but he also knew that the gospel to which he was obliged was for the learned as well as the unlettered. Now, just think about it. It isn't remarkable. I mean, if it is remarkable, the church is the one true global community. It is even more remarkable that the church is the one true classless community. A friend of mine who's now attending a church in a posh area of England has reported back that while in that town the class distinctions are obvious outside the church, in the church, they disappear. Now, we are not embarrassed by the intellectual riches of the Christian message. Oh, no. We have here in the Bible the greatest mind revealed, the most succinct diction, the Logos himself, whose word reverberates in the minds of the philosophers and scientists, artists and politicians, whether they use their thoughts wisely to worship him or not. This is wiser than the wisest, a higher steeple beyond the reach of the most religious, and yet, at the same time, here are words so simple that the lisping babe and utterly uneducated can find a rung upon which to stand above the torrents of foolishness beneath. And so our teaching and ministry then is to be accessible to the foolish without gross distortion and humbling to the wise without any exaggeration. And so Paul has a God-centered obligation to all nations, to all classes, wise and foolish, because most remarkable of all three, he himself is obligated to them. Paul's obligation is God-centered, but it ends in being actually obligated to those Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. That's what he says. How are we to understand this? Well, first, there are two different kinds of debts or obligations. One kind of debt is owing someone money who lent you money. Now, that's not the kind of debt that Paul means, no. The other kind of debt involves a third party. Someone gives you money in order to give it to someone else. And you are then indebted to that someone else until you give them the money that was entrusted to you. Stewardship is a similar uh, idea, even though it's a different metaphor. Paul has been given a gift by God to give to the Roman Christians, to Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish, and he is indebted to them until he gives them that gift, for it is for them from God. He needs to give it to them. It's theirs. A gift from God for them. Now, this thought of being indebted to those who need to hear the gospel is not unique to Paul, of course. He's probably just reflecting or applying Jesus' teaching that uh, at the end, those who serve Jesus will just say, we've only done our duty. 
Second, think of this obligation not simply as indebtedness. Now, in the word, there is this sense of debt, but often the word is used more broadly just of obligation as it's translated here. And so Christopher Ashe, in his commentary on this verse, puts it like this. He says, it's like a city being conquered by a new king who entrusts to the herald the proclamation of his victory and the offer of his pardon. The herald therefore owes it to all the citizens to tell them urgently. Paul feels that urgency. He is eager to preach the gospel to them. Now then, whether we understand, uh, understand this word obligation in the sense of being indebted to give a gift entrusted to us, to those to whom it was intended, or being entrusted with a message declaring the pardon of a king. Either way, this sense of obligation to those who need to hear of Christ is a profound and unlikely, unexpected motivation for evangelism, discipleship, and costly service. We owe it to Chicago, to the world, to our neighbor, to tell the good news of the king's pardon. It's for them, from him. We owe it to the secular university, the Christian college, the educated and uneducated, to give the free gift of God's grace. It is a God-centered obligation. God has entrusted us with a message But that message of free grace is not just for us, it's for those around us, and so it is our duty, as well as our joy, to tell them, I am obliged, he says. And so Paul derived motivation from the gospel, gratitude for the gospel by spiritual fruit, not merely material, individual, or maintenance mode, spiritual fruit, by further expansion, not capitulating to the idea that uh, truth is impossible to proclaim in the face of the challenge of relativistic postmodernism, but because of that truth of the gospel, presenting Christ energetically, boldly, evangelistically. And then by God-centered obligation, not looking around at those about us and saying, well, it's their responsibility. There are many churches in Chicago. They can find their own way, can't they? But realize we have a responsibility to tell. Obliged. Of course, other motivations are more common, the selfie of either carrot or stick. A uh, dentist became frustrated with a patient who was always late. One time, the patient called up yet again and said to the dentist, well, I'm going to be at least 15 minutes late. That won't be a problem, will it? Uh, On this occasion, the dentist decided to reply rather differently. No, it won't be any problem at all. Uh, uh, We just will not have time to give you an anesthetic. (laughs) The patient arrived early. (laughs) So here we are. We're looking around at opportunities for outreach. 
for showing people that Christmas can change their lives? How do we motivate one another? We could be motivated by fear or by guilt. And such motivations just lead to fearful, guilty people, usually. Or we could be motivated by the same gospel that we proclaim. The sheer love of Christ. The power of the gospel to set captives free. It set you free. The beauty of an eternal destiny of ever-expanding glory upon glory. This picture here of an apostle's heart captivated by Christ. That's the kind of gospel gratitude that motivated Paul. May it motivate us too. Let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you for um, causing your apostle to share his heart with the Romans and preserving your word so that we can read it too. Thank you for your spirit that is at work as we read your word and study it. Thank you for this um, description here of Paul's motivation. Thank you that he wanted to reap some harvest. Thank you it was... uh, not just something that he left in the past, but he also wanted to do it among them as the, rest, as the rest of the Gentiles. Thank you that he was under obligation, a God-centered obligation, because of the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel for all who will believe. Thank you, therefore, that he was eager to preach the gospel. We pray for ourselves. We pray that uh, as we receive you, Lord, again this morning, or for the first time, as we sense your free grace and pardon for sinners like us, as we stare into the boundless infinity of your majesty, that we are liberated from selfish motivations, but also from passivity. We're given the confidence to move forward, to take the next hill, to reap some spiritual fruit, to tell our friends, to disciple our neighbors, our fellow students, our workers, our children, knowing that this message you've given us is not to be held closed in our minds, but to spring from our lips to other people as well. Lord God, when we consider how majestic you are and all that you've done, most of all at the cross, we are motivated by your Spirit to sing how glorious you are and to serve you. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.